This is Joel Parker. And I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, January 27, 2015. Coming up, we talk with astronomer Travis Metcalf about finding the oldest known planetary system in the galaxy and what it means about the formation of planets, the possibilities of extraterrestrial life, and how does one actually find planets around other stars? We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Just like scientists have built bombs that can be detonated, they are also building switches in the man-made biological organisms that could possibly be used for bioterrorism. Only this time they are doing so with the view of turning off the chemicals' deadly qualities should the products end up in the wrong hands. The scientists at the University of Edinburgh have developed a set of genetic switches that can be built into the engineered organisms to control their survival. Such switches could prevent potential harm from either the theft or misuse of these substances, which are used in biofuels, food, and medicines. The researchers say that synthetic biology has a huge potential to benefit society, but scientists who use it have to take active steps to minimize the risks associated with man-made biological designs. The study was published last week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Telomeres cap the ends of chromosomes, like the little plastic caps on shoelaces. They unravel with each cell division. The link between aging and telomere loss has been suspected for a long time. Last week, scientists in Sweden reported in the journal Science that chronic malaria infection in migrant great reed warblers also damages telomeres. Birds, like humans, can be infected by the malarial parasite. Specifically, migrant birds pick up various species of malaria parasite while overwintering in the tropics. After their initial bout of malaria, the warblers, which nest in Sweden and overwinter in Africa, are asymptomatically infected for life. The scientists discovered that these cryptically infected birds laid fewer eggs and were less successful at rearing healthy offspring than uninfected birds. Furthermore, infected birds had significantly shorter telomeres and produced chicks with shortened telomeres, too. Just like humans, birds with shorter telomeres had shorter lifespans. These results suggest a mechanism for the long-term health problems associated with chronic malaria. And the results also highlight the importance of these little chromosomal caps. As many of you know, the Rosetta mission delivered a lander on a comet back in November. What many people don't realize is that the lander is only part of the mission. The main Rosetta spacecraft is still orbiting and studying the comet and will continue to do so for at least another year. In the recent issue of the journal Science, the Rosetta Project has published a collection of papers giving the first results of the early part of the mission. These results include details such as the density of the comet, which is 470 kilograms per cubic meter. Well, that is about half the density of ice the comet would float on water. Scientists have mapped the visible part of the surface into distinct regions, like a geologic map of the Earth. There are five types of terrain. Dust-covered, brittle materials with pits and circular structures, large-scale depressions, smooth terrains, and exposed rock-like surfaces. Some exposed cliffs' faces look like they are made of shapes about three meters in size that have been nicknamed goosebumps. 
Their origin is yet to be explained, but their characteristic size may yield clues about the processes and pieces that formed the comet billions of years ago. Rosetta has measured the gas and dust coming from the comet, showing that about four times as much mass is being emitted as dust than is being emitted as gas. This first set of papers describe many other characteristics of the surface and atmosphere surrounding the comet, and this is just the beginning. As the comet approaches the sun, the closest pass by the sun will be in August, the comet will heat up, become even more active, and will dramatically change its behavior and characteristics. And Rosetta will be there flying along with the comet to tell us more about this ancient relic of the solar system. Next Thursday, February 5th, you can combine your curiosity about art, science, and what else but Jungian psychology by attending a free lecture at NCAR, Boulder's National Center for Atmospheric Research. The free lecture will feature artist Jane Momahan and her photos of how climate change is affecting the water cycle. Joining into the Thursday lecture will be NCAR's Jeffrey Keitel, who, in addition to being a climate scientist, happens to be a Jungian analyst, with plenty to say about art and the changes to our water cycle. That free lecture at NCAR takes place next Thursday, February 5th at NCAR, starting at 5 p.m. You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Are we alone? That has been one of the fundamental questions over human history. It is a question that can be addressed by astronomy and more specifically the field of astrobiology. As recently as only a few decades ago, all we knew was our local solar system was the only example of planets and where and how life might emerge. Recently, astronomers started discovering planets around other stars, and the number of discoveries increased incredibly as techniques improved and with dedicated space missions like the Kepler telescope. As we found more planets, we have tried to learn more about them to find out, could they have life? Is the environment of these planets even capable of supporting life as we know it? We have in our studio today... Dr. Travis Metcalf from the Space Science Institute here in Boulder, Colorado, actually just around the corner from the KGNU studios, and he is also the director of the White Dwarf Research Corporation. He studied astronomy at the Universities of Arizona and Texas Austin and has done research in Denmark and at Harvard and the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And he is co-author on a recent paper about the planetary system around the star Kepler-444. So what is so special about this star? Well, he's here to tell us. Welcome to How on Earth, Travis. Thanks, Joel. Happy to be with you. So let's go ahead and start off with that. What is so special about Kepler-444? Kepler-444 is the oldest system of rocky planets known in our galaxy. Oldest system being how old? Uh, 11 billion years. So it's almost as old as the galaxy itself. So this is a system of planets around some other star that was discovered by the Kepler telescope? That's right. It's a, it's a slightly cooler star than the sun. It's about 117 light years away in the constellation Lyra. Basically, it's 11 billion years is um, uh, really extraordinarily old. a long time. Yeah. All right. Well, <clears throat> maybe, maybe we should back up here a little bit and uh, get some background about 
finding planets around other stars and things like that and how we do it. So what is the Kepler mission, since it's called Kepler-444? What exactly is that mission? Well, the Kepler Space Telescope was built right here in Boulder by Ball Aerospace, uh, and it's controlled, actually, um, at the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics at the University of Colorado. Uh, But it was launched in 2009, and it spent uh, the better part of four years staring at this uh, one patch of sky in the summer Milky Way, uh, monitoring the brightness of 150,000 stars. So it just kept pointing at one spot. That's right. And why did it just point at one spot all the time? The basic idea is that some of those stars are expected to have planets, and some of those planets will be aligned just right that the planets will pass between us and the star uh, and cause a little dip in the amount of light that we see from that star. So you're basically trying to see the shadow (laughs) made by a small planet going around a distant star. That's right. And and as the planet goes around, uh, it will do it once every orbital period. And so we can measure the period and use Newton's laws to determine other properties of the planetary system. It must be kind of hard to see such a small change in light from a star just by a little planet. Yes, but Kepler was designed to be a planet hunting machine. And so that's exactly what it does best. Why does it have to stare just at one part for so long? Well, the idea is you don't want to, you want to be an unblinking eye on the on the sky because uh, you might miss the 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 events uh, if you go to some other part of the sky. So you have to sit there and wait for who knows how long till a planet blips in front of a star. Right. And the the basic design goal was what we were trying to find with Kepler is uh, analogs of the Earth. And so if you can imagine a tiny, tiny dip in the amount of light. Um, so somebody outside of our solar system looking for the Earth, if they were just in the right plane, in the ecliptic right. plane, uh, they would see the Earth pass in front of the sun and cause this tiny dip in light. A year later, they would see another dip. And a year later, a third dip. And so you have to see these very, very faint dips that may be separated by some amount of time you don't know about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's why you have to keep staring with an unblinking eye, I guess. And if you if you want to discover uh, planets that are in the habitable zone or the Goldilocks zone of their star where the temperature is just right for liquid water to exist, you want to get out to those year-long periods where the Earth is. Kepler's not finding all the stars that may have planets in that field, I assume, because... They have to be just the right alignment? That's right. It's only maybe 1% to 2% of the stars will be aligned uh, sufficiently well that you'll see any signal at all. So yeah. if that alien Kepler telescope at another in another world was looking at our solar system from the top, from the north, they would never know we had, at least from those Kepler measurements, they wouldn't know that it had any planets. That's right. And so if Kepler already discovered um, thousands of potential planetary systems that are aligned just perfectly, and so we can infer that there are 50 or 100 times more than that. Because you expect those orientations to be somewhat random. So you estimate how many you have, you can guess how many uh, there might be. And that's just in this one field of view of the Kepler spacecraft, which is about uh, 400 times the size of the full moon. And so if you extrapolate that then to the full sky, we're talking about billions of planets in our galaxy alone. From just staring at this one little patch, we can infer all that about how many planets there are. Yeah. Can you give us an idea of how faint this dip is? Like, how hard is it to measure a little (laughs) dip like that? Uh, You know, typically it's a hundredth of a percent in the amount of light that we see. But Kepler's designed to measure at that level of accuracy. Yeah, that's right. So that's that's one type of 
way to detect a planet is the planet actually going in front of the star. Is there any other way to detect planets around other stars? Sure. The the first planets uh, that were discovered around other stars were uh, detected by a, what's called the wobble method. Essentially, uh, you're looking for the reflex motion of the star as the planet orbits around it. Uh, and that method is sensitive to the biggest planets, like the size of Jupiter. Um, so as Jupiter orbits the sun, for example, the sun wobbles around the center of the solar system by about its own radius. Uh, and so we can detect those sorts of wobbles around distant stars and have been doing so since the, the mid-90s. Now, in this case, you're actually trying not to see the shadow of the planet, but actually how much the planet pulls on a star. That's right, yeah. And planet has very small gravity compared to the star. So, again, this must be an incredibly small wobble, a very fine measurement to make. Yeah, we're talking about meters per second velocities. Of an entire star. Of an entire star. Uh is this something that uh, can be done from the ground, or does it have to be done from, from the Hubble Space Telescope, or how are those measurements made? Yeah, those are made from, from ground-based observations. Um, and basically, you know, 10 years ago, um, using those types of measurements, we learned that big planets like Jupiter are around maybe 1% of the stars in the sky. Um, what we found with Kepler over the last five years is that um, smaller planets, which those, these ground-based measurements weren't um, sensitive to before, those small planets like the Earth are, are the rule, not the exception. They're way more common. And so if you pick a random star in the sky, the chances are it has at least one rocky, rocky planet around it. So, so we have two very s detailed measurements to make. One is the wobble of the star. I guess that's more sensitive to the larger planets because they have bigger gravity. Right. So you can detect smaller planets using this occultation method where the planet goes in front of the star? Yes, basically because uh, we're able to measure the brightness of something much more precisely than we're able to mo measure the motion of something. So are those the primary two ways people detect planets around other stars these days? Yeah, although there's there are new techniques. Uh, there are a few systems where the planets have been directly imaged. They, they tend to be young, large planets, widely separated from their star around the nearest, brightest stars in the sky. But that technique will become increasingly important in the future. So this is actually, you can take the other ones, you don't actually see the planet. You see the planet's effect on the star or its light. That's right. But here you're talking about actual images of planets around other stars. Yeah, the first such measurement was made a few years ago by the Hubble Space Telescope, where it took this image of a, of a planet, tried to block out the um, the central star, and saw this little point of light um, nearby, they went back a couple of years later, and that little point had moved around in its orbit. And so they knew that it was a planet. So again, we're talking about very sensitive measurements, because now in this case, the star is how much brighter than the planet around it? You know, yeah, millions of times <laughs> brighter. <laughs> and so it's trying to see, you know, a nightlight against some big floodlight or something like, like that. Like a mosquito uh, around a bonfire. <laughs> <laughs> so all these different methods have been able to find planets around other stars. Yeah. Uh, what, what have we learned about these planets? You know, just kind of in general, what, what are they like? What are their properties? So from the, the nice thing about the transit method that Kepler uses is that um, when the planet passes in front of the star, that gives you a very sensitive measurement of the size of the planet relative to the size of the star. 
So if you can determine the properties of the star, the absolute size of the star, then you know the absolute size of the, of the planets. And anything else you can infer about the star tells you about that planetary system. For example, if you can pinpoint the age of the star, then you know the age of the planets because they formed around the same time. And why do you think they formed around the same time? That's just conventional wisdom that um, the planets and the star, like in the solar system, we know that we can tell how old the sun is um, through detailed methods like seismology. Uh, and we also can directly measure the age of the bodies in the solar system, like from meteorites. We can do carbon dating on meteorites. And those two things are very similar in age. Um, so conventional wisdom is that stars and their planetary systems form at the same time from the same cloud of material. We're uh, listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. If you just tuned in, we're talking to Dr. Travis Metcalf about planets around other stars and what we know about them, and uh, one system in particular called Kepler-444. So let's get back to Kepler-444. What is, what is unique about this system among However many, how many planets have been discovered to date around other stars? A little more than a thousand have been validated and confirmed. Uh, but Kepler uh, has this huge backlog of um, more than 4,000 planets that are awaiting confirmation. So they're, they, they are consistent with a planet-like signal, but there are a variety of other things that can mimic that that we have to rule out conclusively before saying that it's definitely a planet. So Kepler-444 is, is one of these over 1,000 systems that Kepler has found. What makes it special among all the others? Uh, the main thing that makes it special is its age. We were able to determine the age of this star from seismology, uh, and um, at 11 billion years, it's the oldest system of rocky planets in the galaxy. And this is special because it suggests that the galaxy knew how to form rocky planets very early in its history. And if... Um, at the time that the Earth formed, for example, this system was already older, older than the Earth is now. So there's been plenty of time for the galaxy to populate uh, habitable planets in, the, in, the, in our neighborhood. So this is, is this unusual because those early stars probably didn't have a lot of the heavy materials that typically make planets? Or are there other reasons it's unusual? That's right. The, the, the general story is that the Big Bang uh, that created the universe 13.8 billion years ago basically just made hydrogen and helium. The heavier stuff had to come from the first generation of stars that you build out of that hydrogen and helium. The very massive stars then build heavier elements like carbon, oxygen, silicon, magnesium, the sort of things that people and planets are made of. Uh, and then they explode at the end of their lives, pollute the interstellar environment with those materials, and the next generation of stars forms out of that material and can create rocky planets and people. So this star, Kepler-444, doesn't have as much of those heavy materials as, say, our sun does. That's right. It's got half as many um, uh, heavier elements as the sun does, and yet it's still managed to um, create rocky planets. These planets that you found around this star are 11 plus billion years old? That's right. What's the next step in studying this system? I mean, you've, you've found the age, and you say they're Earth-like or Earth's size. I mean, what are we talking here and how far from the star? Yeah. So the largest of the five planets around this star is about three quarters the size of the Earth, and the smallest is almost as small as the planet Mercury. Uh, but this five-planet system is tightly packed, very close to the star. And so these particular planets are not habitable. They all orbit 
comfortably inside the orbit of Mercury in our own solar system. So way too hot. Way too hot. Do you think they originally formed there, or could they have formed further out and come in? Or They probably did form a little bit further out, uh, and there's been 11 billion years for them to migrate inwards. Um, and now they're all in uh, perfect ratios of, of periods that are resonant with each other. So at some point during the orbit, if you were on the outer planet of this system, Sometimes all four of the other planets would be between you and the and the star. It would be a spectacular sight. A little warm, though. A little warm. <laughs> Are these the smallest planets that have been discovered around other stars? No, the very smallest is actually a bit smaller than Mercury, but these are among the, the smallest planets to be discovered by the Kepler mission. And the key has been to try to find these rocky-type planets because... At least from our experience, those are the type of places you might have life. That's right. And and although these particular planets are not habitable, the fact that the galaxy has been making small rocky planets for 11 billion years suggests that there are other stars out there that we haven't found yet where those rocky planets are in the habitable zones of, it, of their stars. And so we talk habitable. Life could <laughs> be on these. Next step, how would we be able to tell if life is actually on one of the other planets? Well, the nice thing about uh, Kepler is it's created this sort of list of places where life might potentially exist. And for something like the, the SETI program, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, where they're listening for radio signals from intelligent civilizations, now they don't have to look at the whole sky or listen in on the whole sky. They have a, a short list of places where uh, technological civilizations might potentially have, have formed. And so they can concentrate on those systems and listen for uh, evidence of radio communications. So we're going to keep listening and looking. That's right. Let me just finish up. You're the director of the White Dwarf Research Corporation. What is that exactly? Uh, that's just a nonprofit organization dedicated to scientific research and public education. I started it when I was in grad school in Texas. Really? Yeah. yeah and it's been going ever since, huh? Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming in and tell us about Kepler 444. Uh, maybe when you find uh, something around Kepler, something else, we can have you come in and tell us about the next planets. Happy to be with you. Thank you very much. That was Travis Metcalf from the Space Science Institute. If you want to find out more about the search for planets around other stars or astroseismology and similar topics, you can visit whitedwarf.org. And in particular, you can adopt a star and help support science research at adoptastar.whitedwarf.org. Information about the Kepler mission is available at kepler.nasa.gov and about exoplanets in general at the Extrasolar Planets Encyclopedia at exoplanet.eu. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Kendra Kruger. This week's show was produced by Beth Bennett, who also engineered the show. Additional contributions by Shelley Schlender and Jane Palmer. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from County Road X. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303 447 9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>